Welcome to this podcast. My name is Dirk Verburg and I believe leadership determines the difference between the success and failure of organizations. I'm a big proponent of the work of Carl Jung and I'm convinced the business world could benefit from his insights. Therefore, I was pleased to have the opportunity to talk to Murray Stein about applying the Jungian analytical psychology in the workplace. Murray Stein is a graduate of Yale University, the University of Chicago, and the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich. He's a founding member of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and of the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. He has been the president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and the president of the International School of Analytical Psychology in Zurich. Murray Stein published tens of books about Carl Jung and analytical psychology. For instance, Jung's Treatment of Christianity, and Jung's Map of the Soul. The focus of our conversation, however, was a book he edited with John Holwich titled The Psyche at Work, Workplace Applications of Jungian Analytical Psychology. I hope you will enjoy this podcast. Good morning, Murray. How are you? Oh, Dirk, fine, thank you. So it is, um, I think, uh, Jung might call it synchronicity that we meet each other on Labor Day to talk about uh, Jungian analytical psychology in the workplace. Yeah. <laughs> Appropriate. <no? laughs> yeah. How are you? Are you okay? I'm okay. Yes, fine. Yeah, super. Yeah. I, I still have so many fond memories of when we saw each other in, in ESAP when I... Um, you know, I was able to take your pictures at the Red Book uh, yeah. Congress. And um, I must admit that um, I, I managed to buy quite uh, a number of books from you. So I have uh, Jung's okay. Treatment of uh, Christianity, obviously also the Map of the Soul. However, um, you also co-edited The Psyche at Work with uh, John Holwich. And, and that's the book that I really, really would like to uh, focus on. Since mm -hmm. it covers two topics I'm really interested in, the world of work and Jungian analytical psychology. I really enjoyed uh, reading The Psyche at Work, edited by, uh, by you and John Holwich. And the reason is that I work in the world of business. And I think this world could benefit so much from the insight that you, John Holwich, and many of the others contributors shared in this book. So I guess my first question is, why did John Holwich and you decide to write a book about applying Jungian analytical psychology in the workplace? Um, well, we didn't really write, a, we didn't set out to write a book. We, <laughs> we designed a conference in, uh, at the Young Institute in Evanston, Illinois, it's just outside of Chicago. And this was in, I believe, the 1980s. Um, and John Holwich was a professor at Northwestern University, and he yeah. worked quite a lot uh, in the business world, psychology and uh, organizations. He's an organizational psychologist. And so he um, persuaded me to um, uh, work together with him to set up a, a conference um, uh, that would be um, attended uh, where the speakers would be from both sides, from psychology, uh, Jungian psychology on the one side and from organizational psychology in the business world on the other side. And so we had a collection of speakers, I think there were eight or 10 of them. And from those we made a selection um, to uh, um, 
publish their uh, their lectures. And that's how the book came into being. And it was really my first exposure personally to um, the um, uh, you know thinking about psychology in organizations and in the business world. As a Jungian analyst, I work with individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, those individuals um, um, occupy many different kinds of spaces in the work world, some on the executive level, some on the um, uh, other professional levels and so on. Everybody other than the retired people uh, are working uh, and most of them in some type of organization. So uh, in working with individuals, I of course also hear a lot about what goes on in organizations and the problems that arise and psychological and social and class and all kinds of things going on in the workplace. So it was an opportunity to reflect on, um, in, in a larger sense, on psychology in the workplace. Um, uh, and so that's what you get in the book. You get various perspectives yeah. on, on this topic. Yeah. Yeah, now, because the, my, one of my uh, questions is that um, Jung did not seem to like large organizations. I mean, I um, I, uh, I looked up uh, some of the things that he wrote about large organizations in his collective works, and uh, I'll, I'll read you a couple of quotes. I mean, he says, for instance, the larger a community is, the more the individual will be morally and spiritually crushed, and as a result, the one source of moral and spiritual progress for society is choked up. Somewhere else, he says, every man is in a certain sense unconsciously a worse man when he's in society than when acting alone. And he also says, and finally, any large company composed of wholly admirable persons has the morality and intelligence of an unwieldy, stupid and violent animal. The bigger the organization, the moral (laughs) unavoidable is its immorality and blind stupidity. Now, the, the interesting thing, uh, I always work my life uh, with this one small exception for large and big organizations. So uh, I can testify to the unwieldy, stupid and, and violent animals that uh, that I've been a part of. But but on the other hand, a key concept of Jungian analytical psychology is individuation, which, which you in the book also indicate is the same as spiritual growth. Now, could one not argue in in favor of of large organizations that they are excellent platforms of could be excellent platform context or even catalysts for for individuation um they force people to interact with other individuals often in a new and sometimes uncomfortable circumstances so does individuation not need a context and could those large organizations not be excellent platforms for this um could be yes could be um, <laughs> um i think the person who works in a large organization has to make a decision a basic decision uh about whether they're going to be um uh true to their own instincts and values as an individual or are they going to adapt to the culture that they have to work in and so uh, there are many stages of, uh, or it's, it's a spectrum uh, from the um, uh, person who's very intent on being an individual in the group to people who uh, just um, swallow the culture whole and become part of it and become leaders in it and rise in it because they conform to the cultural mold. Um, so 
when you say, could it be a place for individuation? Yes, it could, because um, it would force the individual to clarify um, um, values and, and thoughts and ideas and, and perspectives and ideology, belief, uh, by coming up against uh, otherness. Um, we become conscious of ourselves by um, interacting with others and seeing differences. Consciousness requires some um, difference to um, appear so that you, um, if everything is white, you have no... You have no, no contrast, no. Yeah, you need the contrast. So what the organization can give you is a contrast. You have many individuals working in a collective setting how do you fit in there? Do you or don't you agree with certain values and certain things that are going on? So it is a context where you can clarify your own um, values and position, and that moves you toward individuation. Individuation is a process for becoming aware of yourself as an individual. Uh, it has many levels and dimensions, but that certainly would be one, uh, a social dimension. Uh, at the level of, of persona and um, interacting with um, social systems. Um, yeah, I agree. It could be. Often it uh, is so overwhelming, though, that the individual, as Jung says, is crushed. That is, individual consciousness is crushed. And um, one simply adopts groupthink um, and uh, goes along with it until maybe there's a crash or something. Uh, burnout or something happens uh, that uh, forces the individual to take a stand against group thing. Um, the, the other thing that I have, and that, that's one of the most intriguing questions that I have, is um, if you read the essay of, uh, of, uh, of Hallwitz, he says that organizations have inner psychological lives, apparent in collective symbols, ritual behaviors, um, and a cultural narrative. And it's interesting because more books have been written about the topics of, you know, the so-called personality of organizations. I have here, for instance, a book of uh, Corlett and Pearson, and um, the title of the book is Mapping the Organizational Psyche. So my question is, um, do you believe organizations have a unique identity, which is kind of, you know, different from the sum of identities of the individuals that form part of the organization? Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, I don't know about unique. <laughs> that's a that's a pretty strong statement. A unique identity, or, or let's say let's say different. Uh, yeah, they have an identity that is more than uh, the identities of the individuals. Um, uh, individuals join and leave organizations. Organizations go on. You know, a corporation has an infinite lifespan. Uh, it has many individuals um, active in it at any particular time, but they come and go. Um, but the uh, the identity of the organization that is its its um, um, sense of it, <laughs> sense of itself, uh, its um, uh, what it stands for in the world, um, what it what it means in the collective. Um, uh, is beyond uh, the um, you know the uh, the sum of the individuals working in it at any given moment. You take an organization like Ford Motor Company, for instance, 
I know it's had many presidents, it had many uh, workers, uh, but Ford Motor Company founded in, what was it, 1910 or so, uh, rem uh, has a very definable identity as, as a, uh, you know, a, a feature on the collective landscape. Everybody knows it. Uh, you think certain, when you think Ford, you think uh, of a certain level of uh, automobile, vehicle, trucks, and so on. Mercedes has an identity that yeah. is very, uh, you know, German and high level, high quality. So, um, uh, the organization uh, creates an identity usually in its early years. Um, and, uh, and that is then, if it's successful, it's a successful organization that is maintained by the individuals who come into it and leave it over time. It's transcendent. The identity organization, you could say, is transcendent to uh, the individuals, uh, some of the individuals uh, working in an organization at any particular moment. We have the same thing in Jungian organizations. Uh, you know, uh, with Jung Institutes, uh, I've been the president of several of them. And, yeah. uh, and um, uh, presidents come and go, but the, um, the identity of the Institute remains over time and continues with new individuals coming into it. Yeah, I, I think that's a very true point. I think um, as sociologist, uh, as a sociologist myself, I always learned that let's say organizations at a certain moment uh, start to lead a life of their own. I mean, an example yeah. or a case in point is an uh, Olympic committee that was formed in the Netherlands when the Netherlands was doing a bid for the Olympic Games. Oh, we yeah. basically lost the bid, but the organization uh, kept continuing to exist because the members thought it was so so meaningful to meet each other and to let's say explore yeah. common interests. So uh, while the, while the case for the organization had completely disappeared, the organization definitely uh, seemed to live uh, after. the The other question is. Um, do you also think that that an, that an, the identity of an organization can change over time, and and what would it require, and and how would that take place? Well, um, you think of what what does it, you you also ask what does this identity consist of? <clears throat> I think there are um, myths and symbols are involved in mm -hmm. um, um, I, in the identity of organizations. You know, Starbucks has a particular symbol. Um, that is recognizable all over the world. I was in Hong Kong and saw Starbucks years and years ago. And we have Starbucks in Zurich, um, Starbucks all over the United States, Russia has Starbucks, and always the same symbol. <clears throat> you know, it's a Melusina uh, uh, symbol, which is a, a classic uh, mythological image, uh, seductive, come here, you know, so it seduces you to come in. You can lose yourself in uh, Starbucks and have all kinds of adventures and so on. So uh, you have myths and symbols. Sometimes in, uh, with countries, you have um, animals. Uh, America has the eagle. Russia has the bear. Um, you have uh, flags. Uh, so this identity is a is a complex thing made of, of myths and symbols. Um, and... Where does and then you have myths of origin. You know, a country like Switzerland has the myth of William Tell, 
Um, America has the, the myths about George Washington never telling a lie and so on. Um, and, the, um, and then the monuments and the statues, the Statue of Liberty. So this does not, once it's set in place, it, it doesn't change over time very much. Uh, now the country can change. Um, for instance, the United States is going through a huge transformation um, these days in its politics and its economics, um, going through a very turbulent time. And one doesn't know, will that change the identity of the totality of the country? Uh, it's certainly in call, being called into question, what is the meaning of this country? Um, and so that happens in organizations from time to time. They can go through a crisis period um, and, uh, and perhaps lose their identity uh, and collapse uh, and then reform uh, in a new way. Uh, but once the identity of an organization is set and it has its myths and symbols, um, short of a collapse and a total reorganization, I don't think it changes very much. The identity doesn't change very much. It's mm -hmm. a bit like a dinosaur, you know, it, it takes a form and then it just keeps on going until it becomes extinct. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I think I think history has shown that, let's say, um, most of the time, if let's say organizations need to change, then it's most of the time it's, an, it's a very strong input from the outside in terms of you know completely changing market conditions or a crisis of any sort of kind to basically make an organization reflect and change. Um, it, it's rare that let's say forces in the organization itself, um, you know, mobilize enough power and energy to uh, to change. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But what I always uh, find interesting is because one of my passions, and that's also uh, something I'm deeply, deeply involved in, is leadership development. Right. And in, in reviewing leadership, uh, Jung stresses the need for self reflection. Um, he says so called leaders are the inevitable symptoms of a mob movement. The true leaders of mankind are always those who are capable of self-reflection and relieve the dead weight of the masses, at least of their own weight, consciously holding aloof from the blind momentum of the mass in movement. What, what do you think the consequences could be for leaders who are not capable of self-reflection and, and how could it manifest itself in, in the performance of their organizations? Well, you makes a, 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 a contrast. He creates a contrast between so-called leaders and true leaders. Okay, um, I think what he has in mind there, so-called leaders. You know, he, uh, I don't know when he wrote this. This is from his collected works. 10, yeah. You know, yeah. Of that, uh, it could have been after the Second World War. You know, during the twenties and thirties, forties, uh, Europe had the so-called leaders. The the dictators, and Jung commented on them quite frequently. Um, and th these are um, uh, what he uh, is referring to as so-called leaders, inevitable symptoms of a mass movement. In other words, they're part of a mass movement and they appear to be leaders, but they're actually, like uh, somebody said, uh, if you want to be a leader, find out where the mob is going and get in front of it. <laughs> that's a very interesting statement. I will remember that. Yeah, leader. and that's a, you could say Donald Trump is that kind of a leader in the United mm -hmm. States. He didn't create uh, 
the the base that uh, is is not following every word he says, but he tuned into um, a situation, a movement that was already ongoing. Yeah, yeah, and then he became a leader of it. So that's the so-called leader. Now the true leader, what Jung has in mind there are people like uh, Buddha, Moses, and Jesus Christ, and so on. Uh, um, maybe um, um, also some modern prophets like Nietzsche, who was very fond of Nietzsche. Um, these they stay, um, uh, they relieve the dead weight of the masses, at least of their own weight. In other words, they don't burden history with their own weight. They they carry their own weight, um, and they hold themselves aloof from mass movements. Um, so. Uh, um, this was also a, a young situation. You know, he was a leader type. Uh, whenever he joined an organization, they would always make him the president of it. He, you know, he joined uh, psychoanalysis in its early years, and Freud yeah. called him his crown prince, and he became the first president of the International Psychoanalytic Association, from which he then resigned after a few years because uh, he didn't like. Uh, what was happening in that organization and he wasn't in agreement with it. So he individuated, <laughs> he left the organization. Then later he joined an, another international psychotherapy, medical psychotherapy organization that was based in Switzerland and uh, Germany. And he became the president of that in 1933 uh, when uh, Hitler took power and the, the pre previous president resigned was a German, uh, Hitler uh, scared a bunch of people um, out of that organization. And because Jung lived in a neutral country, they elected him president. Uh, and he led that organization until 1939, very controversial uh, on his part. So he was um, a leader type. He was a big man, he had a big personality. Um, on the other hand, he didn't want to um, uh, claim uh, political leadership, particularly. He, he was more of a spiritual leader. You know, he, uh, uh, philosophy and his reflections on history and transcendence and spiritual life and so on. Um, he was more in line with those kinds of leaders, uh, reflective leaders, as he calls them. So this ability to self-reflect uh, isn't a quality that you usually find in organizational leaders. Organizational leaders are more the so-called leaders. They're, they're people who have discovered what is the um, what is the spirit of this organization um, and uh, found a way to step into a leadership role in that organization without, giving that organization uh, necessarily a new direction or a new vision. Um, they take over um, an existing organization and adapt and adopt its identity. And they stand for that organization and they represent that organization to the public. So the president of Ford Motor Company uh, isn't going to change the name and the emblem and so on of Ford Ford organization is going to represent that organization as best he can um, and try to make it a successful you know, business uh, 
um, in a very competitive world. Um, the same thing, um, you, you know, Credit Suisse has recently gone into a, a, a nosedive and collapsed and was not taken over by another bank. Um, and uh, the leadership of Credit Suisse is being heavily criticized by the press and by uh, analysts uh, who are looking into their leadership of that company. And uh, the claim is, and I, I don't know the details about this at all, but that the leaders did not lead the company in a, uh, in a manner that uh, provided for the survival of the company. That's the first job of a leader to make sure his, his organization survives. Uh, hopefully thrives, but survival is the first issue. And um, if you take too many risks or you're, or you're caught up in a mass psychology that has preceded your, quotes, leadership, and you just join in um, and you, um, you, know, you take it into a dead end, um, which is what happens occasionally in um, big organizations. So the, the self-reflection of a leader um, is a is a, uh, a rather um, high level um, uh, demand or or requirement for um, true leaders. Uh, that would be a leader who um, really can, uh, um, on the basis of some new information or intuitions or. Um, um, deep uh, convictions can actually take a organization um, uh, onto a new road or into, an, into a somewhat changed uh, direction. Um, Obama was in, in uh, Zurich, I, I think last weekend, um, and um, he was asked a question that, um, I just read about this in the papers. Um, uh, what was the most surprising thing that he discovered when he became president of the United States? And um, he said, it was very interesting. He said uh, he discovered what a huge um, and powerful um, um, organization he had stepped into the leadership position of, he didn't realize um, the complexity and strength of the American government, its military, its bureaucracy, um, all of its uh, systems. And that was a big surprise to him stepping in as leader. And he said, leading uh, an organization like that is much more like trying to steer a huge ship um, on the high seas um, than it is, you know, sailing a small sailboat where uh, if you're the captain, you can change direction very easily. You just, uh, you know, change the sails and the tiller and off you go in another direction. Changing the course of a huge ship on the high seas is a very, very slow and difficult process. And he felt he failed in many ways. And probably every president of the United States does fail because it's such a huge, massive organization that no one leader in his eight years in office can make a very big difference. 
Um, and I would say Obama is very self-reflective of the presidents. I've known him in my lifetime. Yeah. I put him at the top um, as a self-reflective personality. Um, he thinks deeply. He's very careful in his decision-making. Um, uh, he's not easily um, taken in by other people's opinions. You know, he's, he's a reflective man. Um, so um, it's still um, the, uh, the limitations of leaders and leadership um, is depending on the size of the organization, you know, uh, quite significant. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it is perhaps a very, very difficult question, but, but Murray, what, what would you recommend leaders who, who want to, to develop their self-reflection to do? What, what are practical ways in which they could um, could basically work on their self-reflection? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is going to analysis. Yeah, I was thinking you would say that, yeah. <laughs> uh, what analysis is, is a, um, you know, an exercise in self-reflection. The analyst doesn't tell you what to do. He asks you questions and you reflect. Uh, and you reflect on yourself. Uh, now, I don't know that that would help uh, an, an organization all that much. Uh, what uh, self-reflective, let's say a re reflective leader uh, would do is reflect on the organization. Um, and I've worked... Um, on occasion with people who are, um, you know, business coaches or executive coaches. Um, and they work with the executives on reflecting on their leadership style, um, on their ability to create teams, to um, uh, distribute responsibilities well without losing their leadership position um, and to take time to reflect on um, the uh, not only the um, uh, the financial interests of the organization. This is in the business world where everybody wants to and needs to uh, make uh, make a profit and so on. It's a it's a in our uh, capitalist system. If you don't make a profit, you go out of business. So it's an it's a requirement of leadership to take that into account. But not only that. And I think things have changed uh, fairly significantly in the last decade or two that business leaders are also taking into account social responsibility, you know, where they have their factories or they have their business operations, um, that there is a community outside of their organization that they have some responsibilities to and to, to pay attention to that. And so that type of reflection, I think, can be facilitated by a good executive coach, if the leader is willing to do that. Now, the executive coaches I've worked with also tap a bit into what we do in analysis, that is personal reflection, and uh, an attempt to um, discover um, what, um, are the, what are the um, complexes in the leader's personality that influence or bias his or her judgments. You know, we all have complexes. We have a mother complex, we have a father complex, and that these complexes create disturbances in our consciousness and they influence us to take certain courses of action or to stay away from certain uh, types of challenges. And sometimes these are good, 
then a warning signal, stay away from that, you know where that goes, or they can, um, they can be um, uh, detrimental uh, because you might need to face that particular challenge in order to, um, to thrive or, or even to survive. And if you stay away from it, you land in a, in a more dangerous situation. So to reflect on their own personal complexes and their personal history and how that might influence their leadership of the organization, the kinds of people they choose to work with them, uh, the kinds of initiatives they choose to take or stay away from, the kinds of risks they're willing to take or not take, um, uh, and to include that in the in the self-reflection, uh, which I think is a significant step beyond what is usually taken to be executive coaching to actually also include the personality of the leader in the reflection. But that takes a particular kind of skill and, and some maybe some training in psychotherapy in order to feel comfortable working at that level with a, with a, a leader, an executive. Yeah, exactly. Because that was one of my questions. Because as you already alluded to, executive coaching is a very uh, popular concept in uh, in business nowadays, and and more and more leaders at all levels of organizations are receiving coaching to increase, uh, especially the effectiveness of their behavior, uh, yes. in the hope that this you know uh, increased individual performance will lead to uh, to let's say a higher performance of their organization. And and typically, let's say executive coaching lasts shorter, and and usually stays more at the surface than in depth uh, psychotherapy using uh, you know for instance a Jungian approach. Um, what what do you see in in general? You already touched on it a little bit, but what do you see in general as let's say as the possibilities and, and limitations of executive coaching for individuals and organizations? Well, I think one. Um limitation would be the limitation of the coach. You know, the, the, the better trained the coach is, mm -hmm. um, uh, the more possibilities uh, uh, and depth the coach can offer to the client. So I would say the first thing to focus on would be the training of the coach. Um, I, I'm not in that business of training coaches. I, I, I wouldn't know where quite uh, where to start with that but they would obviously have to have some um, training in organizational psychology and so on, but also maybe some um, training in counseling, uh, depth, depth counseling, and um, even psychotherapy. Uh, executive coach isn't a psychotherapist. Um, that isn't the, the uh, objective of an executive coach as I understand it, but understanding of some psychotherapeutic principles like um, uh, projection, um, um, uh, you know, complex um, enactments, um, uh, shadow awareness, you mentioned embracing the shadow, becoming aware of the shadow, uh, and what, what the personal and the collective shadow of an organization might look like, uh, and how to um, uh, engage with that, how to become conscious of that. So I think the, the better trained the executive coaches in these areas, the further uh, they could take the um, the client. Yeah. And that, of course, it also depends on the uh, capacities of the client and the openness of the client to engage in some deeper reflections. 
Um, some clients are very interested in going there and others really want to stay away, uh, avoid it at all costs. They don't want to touch it. You know, you start asking them more personal questions about uh, their interpersonal relationships, their history and their family, family dynamics, so on. They, they really um, shy away from those kinds of reflections. Uh, so it, uh, it also depends on the willingness of the client to engage in uh, some personal work, um, as well as um, willing to really look into what we call the shadow of organizational life, um, which sometimes takes a pretty strong, you know, um, uh, stomach. <laughs> if you look at the history of organizations and what uh, some of the damaging things they've done uh, in the past, and you want to take some responsibility for that and take that on board and become conscious of it, you, you might have a pretty um, tough time um, convincing other people in the organization that that's a good idea. So um, uh, I think uh, it really uh, depends on two things, uh, um, the, um, the ability of the, of the executive coach <clears throat> to take the client there and the willingness of the client to go there into these areas. Do you think psychotherapy and executive coaching could be complementary? So, for instance, if, if someone would be in, in analysis, let's say, to, um, to you know, really deep self-reflection and working on this individuation, and on the other hand, let's say, uh, receive a more instrumental coaching from an executive coach, do, do you think that combination could work? Or do you have an idea that all kind of undesired interferences might occur? Well, I think it could work. Uh I think it would depend again on the on the coach's um, um, comfort level with that, um, and and on the um, analyst's comfort level with having another, you know, um, sort of um, uh, person um, engaging in this type of um, reflection. But um, I think I think it could work quite well. Yeah. Super. Another question uh, about leadership is that um, Jung also wrote about the limitations of leadership. He says uh, human leadership being valuable, the leader himself has always been and always will be subject to the great symbolic uh, principles, even as the individual cannot give his life point and meaning unless he points his ego at the surface of a spiritual authority subordinate to, uh, to men. My question is, which symbolical principles do you think uh, Jung would refer to? And, and how do you think that could manifest itself in the world of business? Well, I would think of the corporate myth um, mm -hmm. as being uh, a symbolic principle. Uh, that would be something to reflect on in executive coaching. What is what is the uh, corporate myth? You know, what is a myth? It's, it's a story. It's a narrative. When you go out into the wider world, what is the story you tell about your company? It has to do with its history. It's probably its founder, the ideology of the company, the way the company thinks about itself and about the world. Um, and these are symbolic principles that, uh, that in one way limit the leader because he's stepping into something or she, today it's certainly both, in, in a bigger narrative, yeah. Uh, they're stepping into a bigger narrative. And yeah. 
they're limited by that. On the other hand, if they know what it is, they can also use it effectively. True. Uh, and they aren't totally controlled by it. You can also, you know, reinterpret myths and you can make them more suitable for your time, uh, which uh, I think leadership also does. Um, it's something we also do in analysis. Somebody brings you a dream and they've got an interpretation of it and the analyst can offer another interpretation of it. Uh, that brings another perspective. So um, uh, leaders can uh, reinterpret the, uh, the narrative uh, and give it um, um, perhaps a, a more contemporary meaning or an extended meaning, a broader meaning. So they can work with symbols. I agree. That's a very interesting uh, thought, Murray. Um, but but you probably uh, also, you already mentioned a couple of examples, but let's say the business world in the last uh, decades have been plagued by by large corporate scandals, right? If you think, for instance, Enron and WorldCom, who, who had accounting scandals, uh, Facebook with Cambridge Analytica around, let's say, various election uh, campaigns with data leaks and abuse of personal data. Um, if you think about car manufacturers with diesel emissions. So my question is, if and how could embracing their shadow help organizations and business leaders to perhaps prevent these kind of, of scandals? Well, I guess it depends what you mean by embracing the shadow. <clears throat> um, what we do uh, in an uh, analysis, if, that, if that's comparable, is try to become aware of the shadow. And becoming aware of the shadow is a, a, the first step uh, to taking um, um, remedial action. But if you're not aware of the shadow um, and that it is shadow, you know, if you sweep it under the rug, um, then you don't have a chance to um, uh, uh, make any changes or, or um, um, uh, prevent some uh, negative outcomes. You know, you're just enacting shadow. And that's the problem with a lot of these businesses. They look the other way. In a, in a sense, they know it's shadowy and they know it's, um, you know, very... Um, the profit motive, for instance, creates huge shadows because, um, uh, you know, you sell uh, opioids to people in pain and you brush under the under the carpet the fact that opioids, if they're taken for more than two or three days, become highly addictive and will, in the end, kill the person. Okay, you just brush that under the carpet because of the profit motive. So you aren't embracing the shadow. You aren't looking at the shadow. You're sweeping it away. You're looking the other way. A shadow falls behind you. In order to see your shadow, you have to reflect. You have to turn back or ask somebody else about it. What do you see behind me? Do you see that I'm doing something that is contrary to the interests of the, of the health of the client? In the case of the doctors, my wife went to a doctor some years ago with severe back pains, and he refused to give her pain medication for it. He said, it'll get better in about six months. Just live with it. To this day, we bless him. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. At the moment, we cursed him uh, because of the pain was severe. But had he given her opioids, she'd be in a grave today. Um, I mean, it's 
these are the shadow aspects of organizations that um, uh, or the insurance companies who um, benefit from uh, prescription drugs. You know, I had a psychiatrist friend who would be taken out to dinner by the uh, salespeople from a, a pharmaceutical organization. Um, very expensive meal, and under the table, they'd slip him a, you know, an envelope with uh, some hundred-dollar bills for just for you know a little thank you note, and so he would prescribe their drugs. So <laughs> this is shadow, okay? Yeah. Now, a leader of an organization um, takes note of that shadow and understands that shadow, and then asks the question. Should we be doing this? Is this a good idea to do this? Uh, is, is this in the long run interest of the client and the organization? Um, that would be the first step. Um, now you can, once you're aware of the shadow, you can make the decision to uh, go on pursuing um, the, the same course of action as you have in the past, but doing it consciously. Okay, we're aware that we're going to make these people dependent on opioids, and we're willing to do that. Uh, can you do that in good conscience? Well, if you can, maybe you're a sociopath or a psychopath, you can get away with it. Yeah. Um, but at least it raises the issue. And that issue should be discussed in the organization um, openly. And when it's discussed in the organization openly, um, then you start a, a reflection process that can lead to change um, and, and taking responsibility uh, for the actions. And I'm sure if that had been done at Volkswagen uh, with the emissions, uh, if that uh, discussion had been taken uh, into the, uh, you know, into the, into the board of directors openly and discussed as a real issue and not hidden away, you know, you know, this just, you know, it's, it's a small problem. It, it, it won't create, that's wrong. And if those, if those directors had known about it, they probably would have said, no, we can't do that. So embracing the shadow means making it conscious, bringing it out into the open, looking at it clearly, and then making a decision. Yeah, we because shadow of the, awareness, shadow yeah. awareness. Yeah, because but I but I always find so fascinating, and I, I work with a number of companies who went through the, those scandals, is, and and that's what I find so fascinating and strange at the same time. Um, you know, it's it's always a short term play, yeah. Because e eventually, uh, you know, it 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 comes out, and it's also predictable that it comes out so so it's it's really the question what drives people uh, highly developed intellectual people to play short-term games that they should rationally know uh you know will, will come to an end or to um you know become known to the public soon anyway yeah they, they, you know you can become shadow possessed yeah oh really yeah it takes over and it uh, it distorts your consciousness. You aren't thinking clearly anymore. There's a famous story in the Bible, uh, you know, the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, uh, Abel's uh, sacrifice was uh, accepted by the yep. Lord. Cain's yep. wasn't. So Cain is sitting in his tent sulking and the Lord comes to him and says, why are you sulking? Uh, 
You know, um, evil is sitting at the flap of the uh, of the tent and waiting to eat you. Um, but you can overcome it. You can overcome it. So the Lord tells him about it. But he steps out of the tent. He's taken over by evil. He takes his brother out into the field and he murders him. Yeah. This is called shadow possession. Even if you know it's there, you can be taken over by it. And that's the short-term gain mentality. We know it's there, but we can't stop it. We can't help ourselves. We can make such a good profit or we can get our revenge against the other companies, you know, uh, and it's it's like a state of possession. That's a psychological problem. Yeah. And maybe a coach could help them there, sit in on the meeting and say, hey, you guys, uh, you aren't thinking clearly. Something's gotten into you. Yeah. Greed. <laughs> Revenge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a that's a very very sobering uh, sobering thought, uh, Murray. Yeah, and I, I I would agree with you. I, I I've seen cases like that. And another area, basically, if you look at, um, it's a completely different area of 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 the application in uh, in Jung in the business world. And one of the widest applications of Jungian analytical psychology in the business world is the MBTI, the Myers Briggs uh, Type Indicator instrument. It's, for instance, used in assessments and, and job interviews. However, in the last uh, decade, the, the validity of the instrument has been uh, called into question. Uh, and the criticism centers around uh, the forced choice psychometrics, type versus trait, personality test, inconsistency of the test, etc., etc. So there's, there's yeah. more and more discussion about it. W what is your personal perspective on, on MBTI as an instrument? Well, uh, <clears throat> I think it uh, used correctly or, or used in, in it, it's like all tools in the right hands it can mm -hmm. be useful in the wrong hands it's a, it's dreadful. Um, if you if you put people in boxes and say that's what you are and that's what you can do, it's wrong. It's a what Jung uh, and Myers Briggs is based on Jungian you yeah. know, Jung work on psychological types. And what Jung was trying to do was, he said, create a critical psychology. So you respect differences. People assess problems differently. They look, for, they come up with different solutions. They think differently. They they uh, approach uh, life differently. Uh, and so he has the four uh, functions and the two attitudes. Um, and used correctly, that's useful. Um, Myers Briggs is a uh, is a little bit too categorical, you know. puts you in a box. Um, but if if the Myers Briggs is used with a light hand, it can bring about some uh, reflection. Let's say it can bring about a sense of diversity. People are different; they think differently; they approach uh, life and problems and solutions differently, and we can respect those differences and benefit from them, you know. Um, no one function or one attitude covers um, all of reality. So the more input you get from the different functions and the two attitudes, uh, the better your grasp on reality is. So if you build an organization with just quotes one type, it's going to be very one-sided and probably fall over. You want a broad base and you want different kinds of input. So if it leads to uh, tolerance of difference, 
um, then it's a very useful tool. Um, I had a friend who said that um, Jung should have been given the Nobel Peace Prize for his uh, book, Psychological Type. It's the greatest treatise ever written on tolerance. Um, that was his view. It helps you tolerate differences uh, and understand them and appreciate them and be able to work with them. Uh, and so it can be very useful as the beginning. I would say Myers-Briggs is the beginning of an understanding of typological differences and um, valuing uh, different approaches and being able to, to use difference instead of uh, insisting on one's own way exclusively. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because um, uh, I'm also certified in um, in Myers Briggs by by the organization they uh, they founded. So in that sense, MBTI is close to my heart. But what yeah. it always enabled me to do was to have uh, just deeper conversations, uh, yeah. you know, with potential candidates. It's not. It. I mean, I've never used it for a criterion in the sense of um, you know you are this particular type, so therefore um, you don't fit what we're looking for. But I more think well, it's interesting because your profile seems to suggest that in these type of situations you would act in a certain way. Do you recognize yeah. that, and can you make examples? So I always find them, you know, enriching the conversation. Yes, there's another platform called um, uh, what is it? Uh, oh, I can't think of it now. Um, James Johnston came up with a um, uh, the use of um, con a connecting typology to individuation and to a psychological development. Gifts Compass. It's called Gifts Compass. You can Google it. Yeah, and and. Uh, it's a, uh, I think it uh, has the advantage over Myers-Briggs in that it does attach uh, typo, uh, typology to uh, uh, challenges to individuation. So you have certain more developed uh, functions and attitude. Uh, and that means you, um, you need to work on the less developed ones, and it gives you a perspective on doing that. So I think as a tool for... Um, increasing um, individuation prospects, it, it can be quite useful. I agree. Uh, finally, Murray, uh, I have a generic question for listeners who want to learn uh, more about Jungian analytical uh, psychology. I mean, you're, uh, and I already referred it to a couple of times, your, uh, your book, uh, Jung's Map of, uh, of the Soul. Um, is universally regarded as one of the best introductory texts about um Carl Jung's uh, thinking, and it also inspired, for instance, uh, even a cake pop band uh, BTS. By the way, um, yeah. and and I would, you know, really, I really enjoyed uh, reading it because of its uh, clarity and and succinctness, and and can highly recommend it to uh, to anyone interested in understanding more about uh, Jung and and Jung's uh, Jung's world. What what was your motivation for for writing such uh, let's say an accessible succinct uh, book uh, for a broader audience, Murray? Well, originally it was a set of lectures I gave uh, at the Jung Institute in Evanston, Illinois, um, uh, called um, Jungian Psychology: A Deeper Look, and it was uh, to um, a general audience, and I wanted to. Um, give them a, an appreciation of the um, uh, the complexity and um, uh, the um, 
but the, the value of um, Jung's psychological theory. And um, I, I got the title from um, Jung's uh, self-identity as an explorer. You know, he thought of himself as uh, exploring an unknown continent, the inner world. And you can see him doing that in his writings, also now in the famous Red Book, his active imaginations in the course of his midlife crisis. And it was like the discovery of a new continent. Um, and that's the way he presented um, his um, discoveries of the unconscious and its various levels and depths and contours, mountains and valleys and so on. And so he, uh, in my mind, he mapped the inner world or the world of the soul. Um, and I wanted to make that uh, available to um, a more general reading public. I took those lectures and, and revised them and made the book. Um, that um, Jung is quite difficult to read yeah. uh, for most people. Um, and the collected works, 18 volumes, uh, pretty dense writings, and then a lot of other material. So I tried to condense uh, all of that into a understandable um, a roadmap. Now, I want to say, too, that reading the map is not taking the journey, you know, so you can get a sense of the inner world, but it's very important also to discover it for yourself. And that's where, you know, analysis of doing active imagination, working with your dreams, all of that comes in, that you have the experience of this um, territory that we call the inner world or the soul uh, for yourself. And, and what, what type of readers did you hope to uh, to attract, uh, Murray? Well, I would say fairly serious readers. I mean, uh, it's not uh, it's not a simple book or an easy book. I hope it's readable. It, it, it's it's very readable, and that's the reason why I really like it. I mean, it takes incredibly complex, uh, you know, uh, givens and and concepts in union thinking, and it translated into, into let's say what I would say almost the most accessible way possible. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I've heard similar uh, testimonials from people. That was my goal to not to simplify, but to. Um, describe uh, uh, Jung's theory in a way that um, is um, accessible to a an educated, say, university-educated person or a person who really has an interest in psychology and the inner world and without creating too many obstacles, but uh, hoping to entice them uh, into going further in their own inner explorations also. Thank you so much for your uh, for your time, Murray. I, I really enjoyed this uh, this conversation, and uh, I learned a lot from it. And I'm I'm sure a lot of people who will listen to the podcast learn from it as well. I think the way that you uh, connected Jungian analytical psychology to the to the current business world and leadership is 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 has been very very enlightening for me. So thank you so much. Um, Murray, be, be, uh, before we, um, we we end this interview, are there any let's say any any final thoughts on your side? Any things that we have not discussed uh, and which you consider to be important to stress in this triangle of union analytical uh, psychology, the business world, and and leadership? Um, 
Well, the only thing I would say is that um, I think it's important for people to find uh, their own North Star. You know, if you're a mariner on the open seas, you've got to keep your eye on that star so you know where you are and uh, get a sense of direction. So to find that is what we call finding the self, um, an inner source of wisdom and uh, uh, guidance that isn't overly influenced by uh, organizational mentality or culture. We're all influenced by these things, but to have a, a sense of inner guidance that even goes beyond those to guide your own personal life, I think that is what's so important to discover at some point in your life and, and get, um, um, get a good telescope and fix your eye on that star as you make your way through the turbulence of life. Thank you very much. I think that is that is great guide. And thank you so much, uh, Murray. Okay, Dirk, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.